is an adaptation from Lamentations chapter 3. I've seen so much trouble. It's unbelievable. You know, sometimes I feel like it's coming from you, God. Like I'm walking around in pitch black darkness with a target on my back. Why me? Doesn't everything come from you? I just can't forget all the awful times. It's like I've forgotten what a good life is like. Well, good morning, everyone. I want to encourage you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 9. And if you have one of those brown Bibles on there, down there, you will find that on page 758. And we're in the middle of the series that we're calling When God Doesn't Make Sense. Right? Because if we are to only look at our circumstances and our situation in life, we are going to come to the conclusion that God doesn't make sense. Okay? And we're going to come to some very confusing ideas about what God is like. And the first week we looked at the fact that sometimes God can seem distant and uncaring and even indifferent to the pain that we may find ourselves in. And we came to the conclusion that it's that during those times of grief and loss that God is actually more profoundly present in our lives than we may be giving him credit for. And it's exactly at those times that God may want to reveal himself to us in new ways that we might not have ever known him before. And then last week, Troy looked at the fact that sometimes God may seem to be uncooperative. <laughs> right? You ever been there? And, and it, he helped us to understand that as, very often it's not that God is supposed to be cooperative with us and our plans and designs for life but that we're supposed to be cooperating with God and his plans and intentions and design in this world. And that oftentimes we are exactly uncooperative with him. And that if we would step into what God is doing and cooperate with him and his plans and intentions and designs for this world, then we would step into the flow of all sorts of untold blessing in our lives. But I think that there's some more common misconceptions about God and his attitude towards us. Or, or to make it more personal, God and his attitudes and perceptions towards me. How he perceives me. His kind of emotional state towards me. And that that is one of disappointment. That somehow God must be perpetually let down by me and my behavior and my performance in some way. Almost like my friend who was telling me the story about when he was coaching his friend's, his, his son's baseball team. His son is nine years old. And he was coaching down the, the, the first baseline. And his son came up to bat. And his son's actually a very good hitter, okay? But he, even the greats only bat around 300 average, right? Okay? And so this kid got up and he struck, and he's two strikes. And on the third strikeout, his son intentionally, just instinctively, looks down the first baseline and he saw his dad. And what does the dad do? Just hangs his head. What most of us, many of us would do in a situation like that. And I think for many of us, that is kind of the image that we grew up of with God. That he must be perpetually in a state of disappointment with us. 
and hanging his head at us or at our performance in us. And we're kind of perpetually on this performance treadmill trying to earn his approval, trying to get him to smile, trying to get out of the doghouse with God, so to speak. And I, I'm not exactly sure how we grew up with that perception of God because you won't find that in the scriptures necessarily. And I suspect that many of us have that perception of God because we've inherited it from our relationship with our parents growing up. And like it or not, for better or for worse, most of us, how we perceive our relationship with God and how we understand God and how we think about God comes from our relationship with our parents. And many of us grew up with this performance mentality with our parents. I'll never forget the time when I was with a friend of mine in his car and um, our kids were still toddlers, but we were waiting for his son to come out of grade school. And it was report card day. And so his son had his report card with us, with, with him. And I know that for some of you it's hard to imagine that there were actually days that they sent report cards home with the students. Okay? I know now everything is posted online and on the internet and stuff like that, but there's actually days where they sent the report cards home with the students and trusted them to get their report cards home to their kids without being doctored up along the way. And this kid got into the car and uh, his dad said, essentially, all right, let's hear it. How'd you do? And so the kid starts rattling off his grades for each subject. And with every grade the kid reported, the dad says, bad, bad, you can do better than that. You can do it. I'm so disappointed in you. And you could just feel the shame rise up in this kid. And let me tell you, if you grew up in a home like that, or a family like that, and we all grew up in families like that to some extent or another because all of our parents are broken in some way, then your natural tendency, your natural tendency is going to project that image onto God, and it's going to very easily come away with an image of God that's never quite pleased or delighted in who we are. And then let's face it, some of us, if we grew up with this perception of God at home, many of us, it was just reinforced when we went to church, right? I mean, everything that we suspected about God was just confirmed when we went to church. I remember talking with a lady who started attending our services here, and she said that it was really kind of a gut check to go back to church for her, because she said in the church growing up, all she heard about was how bad they were. And they would always leave a church service feeling a lot worse about themselves and who they were than when they went into the church. And if it was kind of the benchmark of how the gathering went, how the service went, like if you left feeling really bad about yourself, then that was a really good service, right? Which, which is really kind of interesting because when people hung around with Jesus, that is not the impression of God that they got. When they, when people left from being with Jesus, they were actually reminded and renewed in their understanding of how much God loved them and cared for them and wanted to be in relationship with them. And to make matters worse, sometimes it's the church itself which is so helpful at connecting the dots between the negative circumstances in our life and the obvious sin in our life and have come to the conclusion that the two are directly related and that one is a sign 
of the other of God's obvious displeasure and disappointment in us? I'll never forget the time when uh, I was uh, excommunicated from church. Yes, I was excommunicated from church. And here I am talking to you right now. All right. It's a long story, but actually it has a lot more to do with the fact that Carr and I were hanging around with a lot of these friends who were far from God, smoke, drank, used colorful language, and, and didn't go to church at all. And it kind of culminated this explosion, and we were excommunicated from church that we were attending. And so with our newfound freedom, we went on a weekend getaway with all of our new friends that we now had freedom to hang around with. And, uh, and we had a great time. And what we learned when we came back to town was that while we were gone, our apartment that we lived in was completely ransacked and robbed. And everything was stolen from us. They took everything. They took everything they could sell. Electronics, the television. They took Cara's wedding dress. And not long after we got back, we heard that the leadership of the church that just excommunicated us they made a pronouncement that that was basically their proof that we were not in the right with God. That that was a sign of God's apparent and obvious displeasure in us. And that the two were somehow related to one another. And then we, we take this perception of God that we receive from growing up from parents, which is then reinforced when we go to church, and then we extrapolate that perception onto our experience and our circumstances in life. And it's a perfect storm, isn't it? Because when we look at what happens to us in life, we become convinced that God has to be mad at us or disappointed with us because things never go our way. And we conclude that it has to have something to do with the fact that God God is somehow disappointed with us, right? I mean, we have all been there before, right? Something doesn't go right in our life and we immediately connect it with the fact that God must be mad at us. Am I the only one who thinks this way? I, just as an example, our family, we live uh, not too far from Pick and Save South on the corner of Paradise and Maine. And so now to get from our house to our new offices here at the community center, I have to get on the interstate. And on Paradise Road between our house and the interstate, I kid you not, I think there are like 300 stoplights. I'm not exaggerating, okay? And, and they are not synchronized at all. And so the one stoplight is, is, turns green, and I just floor it to try to get to the next stoplight. And I'm stopped at a yellow light on 7th Avenue because one car at Menards wants to get out of the parking lot. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I'm like, God, this, you must hate me or something like that. And it doesn't help things at all that when I'm driving with my wife and she's behind the wheel and she's driving, she hits every green light every time for her. And I look at her like, this is not fair. And she looks at me and she says, well, God just loves me. Which is a sentiment that I don't exactly appreciate. Because the unsaid logic there is that God obviously hates you. Because you never make any of those green lights. I mean, we do this, don't we? We look at our, at our lives and we must conclude to ourselves that God must be disappointed with ourselves, with us. 
We look at life and we try to connect dots that may or may not be there. And we come to the conclusion that the bad things that are happening to us must have something to do with our performance or our ability to keep God's commands. Almost like a Christian version of karma. Like what goes around comes around. Or like a Christian version of that God is like a big Santa Claus, right? He's making a list. Checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty and nice. And if you've been naughty, he is going to put a big lump of coal in your, the stocking of your life. Right? And we think that God must be like that. And we say to ourselves, things like, oh, I, should have gone, I should have gone to church this week. Because then I wouldn't have gotten in this car accident. Or I, 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 I need to take communion this Sunday so that I can close the deal with the client in a big way. And we end up believing more in a Christian version of things that are is, is more like superstition. A Christian version of superstition more than what the Bible teaches about what God is like. There was a time, however, when the, the people of God knew exactly that God was disappointed with them and that the difficulties and the tribulations that they were facing, they were going through, were directly from God and that they were in essence being punished from, by God for their constant rebellion. In Lamentations chapter 3, the, the verses that God, or that, that Don, who is often confused with God, uh, just read for us in Lamentations chapter 3, reflect this time. It was in the year 586 B.C. And God had repeatedly told his people that if they did not turn from their wicked ways, that they did not turn from their rebellion, that he was going to send the Babylonians against them and that he was going to destroy the city of Jerusalem. They were continuously and constantly warned that this would happen. It was a very unique, very specific time. And they refused to turn, and eventually the Babylonians did come. Jeremiah the prophet said this is exactly what God said was going to happen. He declared it while it was happening. And Lamentations is basically in the aftermath of that destruction. And Jeremiah is looking out over the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, and he's literally lamenting over what has happened. And that's where we get the book, name of the book, Lamentations. And then he takes this, this communal and collective experience that Israel had experienced by God and he begins to kind of just personalize it on how it affects him personally. And he says this in Lamentations chapter 3, the verses that, that Don read for us. He says, I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. He has driven me away and made me walk in darkness rather than light. Indeed, he has turned his hand against me again and again all day long. He's besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and hardship. He has made me dwell in darkness like those long dead. Even when I call out or cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. Have you ever felt like that? That God must be disappointed in you in some way because of what you were experiencing in any given way. Just this week, I was listening on the radio and I heard a story about a woman who was fleeing from her home in, uh, in Charleston, South Carolina because of the Hurricane Matthew and the floods that were approaching. And 10 years prior to this, she had lived in New Orleans and her house was completely wiped out by Hurricane Katrina. And so she moved inland to Baton Rouge 
Louisiana. And if you're familiar with what happened earlier in this year, Baton Rouge was completely flooded and she had to flee again. And now here she is in Charleston, South Carolina. And Hurricane Matthew is barreling down on top of her. It would be easy for a person to say to this, God, you must be against me. I must have done something wrong. And what happened is that in Israel's experience, their hardship kind of continues. What was very specific and unique to them continues. They go from one oppressor to the other. They go uh, from the Babylonians to the Greeks. And then finally the Romans are subjugating them. And, uh, and at this time, kind of simultaneously at this time, the Jewish people took what happened to Israel as a nation in that very specific and very unique time in the life of the nation of Israel. And they began to personalize it. And they began to develop this, this kind of well-developed and codified theology that if bad things happened to a person, then it was a direct sign that God was against them. God never intended for this to happen. But this is the theology that they began to develop. So by the time that this rogue rabbi appears on the scene named Jesus Christ, this is a well-thought-out and developed theology in the minds of most Jewish people at the time. They said if you were rich and if you were wealthy, that was a sign of God's smile and blessing upon your life. And that if you were in poverty or you were poor, then that was obviously a sign that God was displeased with you and you must have done something wrong to deserve that. Now, I don't know anybody who would have ever thought that way, right? (laughs) But this is how they thought back in Jesus' day. And we're going to look at a story today of how this is kind of fleshed out and demonstrated in the life of Jesus Christ. So I want us to turn to John chapter 9. If you aren't there already, we're going to just read some bits out of this passage today. And we're going to look at see and see how Jesus turns that kind of thinking completely on its head and he leverages this incident to point us towards something more profound, more powerful than just asking the question, why is this happening to me? What have I done wrong to deserve this? In John chapter 9, the very beginning, it says, As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. And disciples and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Okay, there it is. There's that well-thought-out, well-developed theology that whatever happens to you must be the direct result of something that you or your parents have done. Okay, and you can just imagine this situation. Here's this guy standing there and the disciples take the opportunity to have this theological discussion right in front of him. It's like, Rabbi, who sinned? This guy or his parents? Who's to blame? Why did this happen to him? And you can just see him going there. "Uh, Excuse me. I'm blind, but not deaf. I can hear you guys talking about me. Right now, and Jesus is very clear in the next verses. He says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be 
displayed in his life. Jesus makes it painfully clear that whatever we may think, we cannot correlate negative experiences, whether they're adversity or misfortune or tragedy, with God's attitude towards us. The two are not necessarily related. We don't have all the information. And the situation is more complicated than we might expect. And in this situation, Jesus clearly says it is so that the work of God might be displayed in his life and that God would be glorified through it. Moving on. In verse 4, he says, As long as the day we must do the work of him who sent me. When night is coming when no one can work, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with his saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Now, imagine if you are the blind man in this situation. And you're standing there, they're having this theological discussion right in front of you. And all of a sudden you hear Jesus go, and start hocking a loogie right there. And you're like, what is going on? And then he bends over and he's like, you know, and then he takes this mud from the saliva and he puts it on the man's eyes. And he says to me, he says, hey, go wash in the pool of Siloam and then come back. And if you're the man, you're going, you don't have to tell me twice to do that because I don't know what you just put on my eyes, but I didn't like the sound of it at all, okay? And so he goes to the pool of Siloam and he washes and he comes back seeing. Now, at this point, this causes quite a stir in the neighborhood that we're in because all of this man's neighbors recognize this guy as a man who was a blind beggar and was actually born blind at the time. And so there's quite a stir and quite a kind of a discussion at this point, at this point. And at this point, you enter in the Pharisees, okay? This is, okay, movie at this point, you go, dun, 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 dun. Okay, so, um, so the Pharisees come in at this point. And they, are, and, and they begin to have this kind of problem with what Jesus did. Because the day that Jesus performed this miracle and healed this man born blind was on a Saturday. It was on the Jewish Sabbath. And so there's this debate as to whether Jesus could actually be a prophet or not because he broke the Jewish, Jewish Sabbath. And finally they turn to the man's, the man's parents themselves. They bring them in and they kind of, they are so scared of the Pharisees that they plead the fifth. And they're like, uh, yeah, he's our son. And we can say he was born blind, but how he sees, we have no idea. Okay? He's of age. You ask him, okay? And they, well, they want nothing to do with it. Then verses 24 and 25. We, they have this, more of this debate. And, and the second time, they summon the man who had been blind. They say, give glory to God, which means tell the truth. They said, we know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see isn't that beautiful? Isn't that a beautiful expression? It's like, you know, I'm not exactly sure who this guy is, who this Jesus character is, but one thing that I do know, I was blind, I couldn't see, and now I can. 
And so by this time, the Pharisees are so completely frustrated, so thoroughly frustrated. They get into an argument with the former blind man. And I love it. This guy, he just goes toe to toe and stands his ground with these Pharisees and, uh, about Jesus. And finally, he says to them at the end, verse 32 to 33, he says this. He says, listen, this is the, the blind man debating with the Pharisees. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. All right? If this man were from God, he could do nothing. In verse 34, to this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. You were steeped in sin at birth. Translation, you were born blind. All right? That is a sure sign of God's disapproval on you nothing could be clearer for us if you had that kind of infirmary and if they had that kind of disability it's a sure sign that you are just riddled with sin see the pharisees like everyone else they're still trying to connect dots that aren't there and they're looking at the negative things that happen to people and coming to the erroneous conclusion about causality and trying to get at the root of why something has happened. This is something that we were never intended to know or worry about. Instead of asking the why question, why did this happen? We're supposed to ask the what question. What is it that God wants to do in this situation? And they've totally missed that in this particular situation, that God is doing something new and wonderful through this man, Jesus Christ. I think the same could be said of us as well. When we are looking at our circumstances and think that God must be disappointed in us or punishing us or coming to the conclusion that this happened because I didn't go to church or because I didn't give enough money or because I'm a bad parent or something like that, we're asking the question, we're asking the wrong question because we're essentially asking the why question. Why is this happening to me? When what God wants us to be asking is the what question. What is it that you are trying to teach me about yourself through this negative circumstances? What is it that you want to do in and through this situation? What are you trying to teach me, God, about myself through this negative experience that I cannot learn any other way? When we think that God must be disappointed in us, we're essentially trying to answer the why question. Why did this happen? But God wants us to ask, and he wants to answer the what questions in life. And in this situation, Jesus still wants to do something profound. The man born blind has been thrown out of the synagogue by this time. <laughs> and in verse 35, it says, When Jesus heard that they, threw, they had thrown him out, sorry, Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? It says, When Jesus found him what does that infer what was jesus doing he was looking for him jesus was looking for him and this is a picture that we see very often in the scriptures that the picture we see of god is not a god that is disappointed in us but it is a god who is looking for us 
It is a God who is seeking us and wants to find us and wants to be in relationship with us, far from being disappointed with us, far from being perpetually displeased with us. God is a God who is heartbroken over the loss of relationship between himself and humanity, almost like a parent grieving for a lost child. We cannot connect the dots between our circumstances and God's attitude towards us. But we can connect the dots between Jesus and God's love for us. And this situation shows it. And then you have this picture, this wonderful picture, where Jesus says to him, he says, Do you believe in the Son of Man? That was another title for the Messiah. Who is he, sir? The man said. The man asked, Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. This is a beautiful picture. The man realizes who Jesus is at that moment, and he doesn't hesitate. He doesn't doubt. He just kind of jumps in with both feet, and he falls down at Jesus' feet. I just imagine in my mind's eye. And he worships Jesus. Which, if you were a Jewish person at this time, that was a big (laughs) no-no. You know, every true blue Jew knew from childhood on that there's only one person and one being that you worship. And who's that? God. And here we have a man worshiping Jesus Christ and Jesus freely accepting and receiving worship from another human being. This would put Jesus like on par with guys like Jim Jones or other crazy cult leaders who accept worship or Jesus is clearly making a statement, then he is none other than God himself. And this man falls down and he worships Jesus. And if you were a movie maker at this time and you were filming a a, a film at this time, you would now pan back from this scene. You would cut to an angle of this man at Jesus' feet and you would pan back until you got to the, the backs of the Pharisees that are watching this whole thing take place. And it kind of ends with them. Jesus says in verse 39, Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Now some Pharisees who were there with him had heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Now that you see, you claim you see, your guilt remains. See, in Jesus' own unique, particular way of teaching, he oftentimes equates blindness with spiritual blindness, of being disorientated about who God is and cut off and disconnected from a relationship with God. And that the first step to being able to, to see spiritually is to recognize and acknowledge your own blindness, your own spiritual blindness, your own brokenness, your own need for God. And normal people, the sinners of the days, were the people who were repenting of their sins and turning to trust in Jesus at the time and believe in Jesus. But the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, they categorically, absolutely refused to do this. And in doing so, they completely missed what God was doing right in their midst through the person of Jesus Christ. 
And Jesus calls them out on it here. And he says to them, in essence, because you claim to see, because of your spiritual pride, because of your arrogance and your refusal to acknowledge your sin, your guilt remains. See, there are times when we may look at our circumstances and our lives and say, God must be mad at me. God must be disappointed in me. I must have done something wrong. But when we ask that, we are asking the why question and trying to connect dots that aren't there and answer questions that we were never intended to know the answers to. But Jesus is always asking a completely different set of questions. He's always asking what? What does God want to do in and through the situation? And how? How are you going to respond to it and to respond to the work of God in your life. And this narrative, if it illustrates anything, it illustrates two diametrically opposed responses to that question. Are you going to be like the Pharisees who categorically refuse to acknowledge their sin and who Jesus is and they totally missed what God was doing and wanted to do in their midst? Or are you going to be like the blind man who recognized Jesus for who he is who believed in him and who worshipped him. Let me tell you, God is not disappointed in you. What we see in the person of Jesus is exactly the opposite. We see the expression of a God who is seeking us and who longs to be in relationship with us. The only question in this equation is really, how are you going to respond to him? Are you going to be like the Pharisees who refused to acknowledge their sin and refused to acknowledge who Jesus was? Or are you going to be like the blind man who recognized who Jesus was, recognized what God was doing in him and through him and responded in belief and in worship? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, depending on how we grew up, what kind of church experience we may have had growing up, there are loads of us here who grew up with the continual impression that you're just constantly disappointed in us. And even to this day, we're, we're trying on this treadmill to, to please you, to, to, to live up to your expectations for us. And many of us, we look at the things that are going on in our lives and their circumstances, and we've come to the conclusion that you must just be so mad at us or disappointed in us. And when we ask those questions and come to those conclusions, we're, we're asking questions that you never intended us for us to ask. And in the person of Jesus and in the story that we read today, we recognize that far from being a God that's disappointed in us, you're a God who's seeking us and who longs to be in relationship with us and is simply asking the question, will you recognize what I'm doing in your midst? Will you recognize me for who I am?
that Jesus was the ultimate and perfect expression of the loving God towards us. And that if we would just turn from our sin and turn to belief in Jesus, that we would have the spiritual blinders taken from our eyes. Scriptures say that if anyone turns to Jesus, a veil is taken away from their eyes and we can see clearly. And God, I pray for anybody here who has never had that veil taken away, who has never connected with you through the person of Jesus Christ and belief in Him, that they would reach out for you and believe in you and that they would be able to see spiritually and come alive spiritually in you. Father, we can be so disoriented about who you are. Our prayer is that as we are a community who looks more and more at the person of Jesus, we would be more and more convinced about who you are, your love for us, and your invitation on our lives to join you in your work in the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.